been running in circles, jumping the hurdles, getting caught in that rush of doing so much. I'm feeling kind of worn out, always checking the boxes, trying to be flawless. Has been spinning my head, catching my breath, too afraid to slow down. I tell myself to keep this up, that God wants more than just my love. But I've been complicating things, it's just like me to overthink. Gotta keep it real simple, keep it real simple. Bring everything right back to ground zero, cause it all comes down to this. Love God and love Rescues hearts and changes lives. Love is all we need to make things right. Gotta keep it real simple. It's really so simple. Gotta keep it real simple. Keep it real simple. No
Good morning, church. So glad you're able to join us. I invite you to sing and celebrate what Christ is doing in our hearts, in our lives. Let's celebrate his grace today. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory.
Well, good morning to you all. 
Glad that you could be joining us wherever you are here today. Uh, So by now, obviously, you know we made the decision to move all on-site services today online. Uh, We did that out of the concern for potential inclement weather. And we do live in North Carolina, which means that half of you probably have an inch of ice out in your road, and the other half of you, it's 80 degrees and sunny. So I'm not sure which one you are. Whatever you are, glad that you're with us here online. We just felt this was the wisest and best thing we could do just to make sure everyone stays as safe as possible. So thank you again for being with us here this morning as we worship online together. Before we jump into God's Word, a couple of quick announcements I want to throw your way just so you know what's going on, uh, how you can stay plugged in and engaged this coming week or so here at Southview. Um, First big announcement is this, our youth ministry is going to have a parent meeting on January 30th directly following the 11 o'clock service in the FLC. So if you're a youth parent, if your child is 6th grade through 12th grade, whether they're actively involved in that youth ministry or not, we'd love to have you come be a part of that on January 30th. At that meeting, you're going to get a calendar for the year, all of 22, um, what uh, the youth ministry has planned coming up, so you know how to plan accordingly for your family and what to look forward to coming up. So that's going to be January 30th, directly after the 11 o'clock service. Also, we have some equipped classes coming up. So let me explain how our discipleship process works here at Southview. One of the main avenues we believe discipleship works is in small groups. We have two main tracks for that. We have what we call journey groups, which are our ongoing small groups where a group of people come together, they stay together, uh, and they meet once a week to encourage one another and be in one another's lives and rally around uh, one another in prayer and ministry and dive into God's Word with one another, encouraging one another um, uh, to uh, grow deeper in the Lord and your love for Him. That's our journey groups. Then we also have equipped classes. Equipped classes are different. They're sort of one-offs. They're classes that we have set up for you to come and be instructed uh, in sort of the big rocks of the Christian faith, right? Big things that we believe are important for you to grow as a believer in Christ. So we're starting up our new slate of equipped classes for 2022. We're going to begin that on February 6th. Uh, So some of the classes we have coming up, we have a class called Journey Into God's Word. It's going to teach you how to study the Bible. We all know it's important to be in God's Word to grow as a Christian, but some of us struggle with how to do that, what that looks like. This is the class that's going to teach you how to do that, model that for you, so you're going to leave this class much better equipped to dive into God's Word and let God's Word equip you and change you into the image of Jesus Christ. Also, we're going to have a couple of marriage classes. We're going to divide the marriage classes up between men and women. We're going to have a class for husbands and a class for wives. Uh, the men's class is called Created to Need a Help Meet, uh, and the women's class is Created to Be a Help Meet. This is an opportunity for you to see what God's Word says about you as a husband and a wife, what it means for you to live out faithfully in God's uh, design for marriage. So you can sign up for that. And then also we have our core Christianity 101, which basically lines out the big ideas of the Christian faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? What are some of the big ideas of the Christian faith? How does this thing work in your life? Core Christianity 101. 
is going to help you do that. So to sign up for any of these classes, you just text the word EQUIP to our number, 910-424-1298. Text EQUIP. You'll get a link sent to you. Check off the class you would like to be a part of. Submit that, uh, and we'll get you signed up for that. Again, that's all going to start February 6th. All of those classes are at the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, all of them uh, at the 11 o'clock hour. And so sign up for that uh, by texting EQUIP to that number. And then also we have some fellowship opportunities coming up for you. For our men's ministry, uh, we have a movie night that's going to be on January 29th. Uh, at 6 o'clock, we're going to be watching the movie War Room. It's for the whole family. Our men are putting it on for us, but it's for the whole family. So if you'd like to be a part of that, just text MOVIE to our number, 910-424-1298 to sign up for that. Uh, let us know how many is coming. Then also for our guys, uh, we're going to have a breakfast on uh, February 5th. Really excited. I'm going to get a chance to come and share God's word with us as a men uh, as we begin 2022 and really lay out uh, one of the things that we as a pastoral staff believe are really important for us um, as to grow in Christ as men in 2022. So I encourage you to be a part of that. Text the word breakfast to sign up for that. Uh, you can come and be a part of that. For all other announcements, anything that's going on, you can download our app uh, at iTunes or Google Play. Download the Southview Baptist app so you can find out everything that's going on. You can give online, obviously not being here today in person. You can give online through the app. We encourage you to do that uh, and find out everything else that's going on and get plugged in to life here at Southview. But we're so glad, again, to have you with us here this morning together. So let's jump into God's Word, all right? We're going to be in the book of James. James chapter 1, we're going to start it again in verse 1 today, and we're, we're going through the book of James, and the big idea for James that we want everyone to understand is a faith that saves you will also change you, right? This is the big idea we're trying to get across. A faith that saves you will also change you. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will grow spiritually. It is just a fact. Right? You will grow. You will mature. You will develop as a Christian. You will grow in holiness. You will repent of sin. You will bear spiritual fruit. If you are a genuine, legitimate, saved, redeemed child of God, that faith in you will change you. And as a result of that, you will live a life that demonstrates legitimate, objective truth and evidence that you are who you claim to be, right? A faith that saves you will also change you. And this is where the book of James comes in, because James is trying to help us understand how we practically do that, right? If having faith in Christ changes you and causes you to bear out spiritual fruit and live in a certain way and walk out a certain way, James is trying to help you accomplish that. The neat thing about James is James is not trying to teach you new theological ideas. James is trying to help you live out the ones you already have learned. Does that make sense? His big push is great. You say you are this. You say that you know these things. You say you believe these things. That's great. Now let's talk about doing it, right? This is the whole point of James. A faith that saves you will inevitably change you. So let's chat about how that works. So James chapter 1, 
We're going to pick it up again in verse 1. Um, I jokingly said last week, if you were with us, that I preach an entire sermon on just the first verse in James. That's actually not true. Uh, I went back and realized that I'll preach an entire sermon on the first half of the first verse in James. We only did the first half of the first verse. So we're going to the pace is going to pick up a little bit more starting today. We're going to clap off, uh, click off a little bit uh, more uh, of the passage than that. But let's start back at where we were. James chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see what we saw last week. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we talked about who James was. Who is James? James is the little brother of Jesus. They grew up together. Joseph and Mary are James' mom and dad. He grew up with Jesus, saw Jesus, however, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and then rose again on the third day, came to James, revealed himself to James, and from there James became a believer in Christ, a a pastor in the Christian church, a leader in the Christian church, eventually a martyr for his faith in his big brother Jesus. But what we saw last week was the interesting thing about James is even though he's the brother of Jesus, he doesn't present himself as the brother of Jesus. He instead presents himself as what? The servant of Jesus. And so we chatted about that. The importance of being the servant of Jesus. Jesus is your master. You know him. You love him. You serve him. You obey him. And so we said how everything else we're going to see in the book of James starts first here. If you're going to walk out of faith that obeys Jesus, you must first nail down in your heart that he is your master and you're his servant. You follow him, you obey him, you love him, you serve him. What he tells you to do, you do. What he tells you not to do, you don't do. This is the whole point, right? So, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's chat just for a second now about who he's writing to. James servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to who? The 12 tribes in the dispersion greeting. So who are these people? What's he talking about? Who's he writing to? So if you have read your Bible, whenever you see that phrase, the 12 tribes, that should immediately ping up in your mind. He's referring to the Jewish faith, right? And so there were the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and that was sort of a way of explaining um, the Jewish people as a whole, the 12 Tribes, And so he's speaking now in a New Testament context of, yes, he's writing to many Jewish Christians, but also some Gentile Christians as well. And so the 12 tribes, as we look in the New Testament, is a way of sort of speaking of the people of God, right? In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the people of God. And now in the New Testament, the Bible would say that we've been grafted into that, and we are now also the people of God. To the 12 tribes, what? In the dispersion. What does that mean? So the word dispersion comes from disperse, right, to be cast out. So if you were to go back in Acts chapter 8, what you're going to see is the people of uh, uh, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. Thousands of people become Christians. The church in Jerusalem begins to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. But in Acts chapter 8, persecution hits the church and it scatters. Acts chapter 8 says the apostles stayed there in Jerusalem, but pretty much everyone else fled. And so they all run off because of persecution. They're running away in fear. God is ultimately doing this, but he is dispersing them. So they're considered the people who are in the dispersion. So he's writing to them. So think about this. These are people who have been kicked out of their homes because they're Christians. 
They've lost their jobs because they're Christians. They've lost their financial security because they're Christians. They've lost friends because they're Christians. They had to move to other parts of the known world, places that they do not know. They know no one there. They have no network there. They don't know how they're going to provide for their families there. They've been cast out. These are people who are in serious trial and difficulty. They're in pain. They're in hardship. They're in anguish. Everything that they thought they knew about life has been flipped upside down. They don't know what to do. And he's writing to them. And think about it just for a second. If you're writing to a group of people who have had their entire lives flipped upside down, everything they thought they knew and understand has been taken away from them. Everything they were putting their hope in from an earthly perspective has been ripped away from them. Everything they thought their life was going to be in the years to come has been now wiped off the board. None of that's going to exist anymore. All their five, ten-year plans have been gone. Forget the 401k. Forget the retirement plan. Forget the house at the beach. Forget all the ideas that you had. All of that's been taken away from them. They are in distress. And his main goal is to help them understand how to practically live out their faith. So it will make sense if you're writing to a group of people who are in great distress and your hope is to help them understand how to practically live out the faith, it would make sense that the first place you're going to start is to help them understand how to live out their faith in that trial, right? So that's exactly where James starts and that's where we're going to start. What does it look like to live out the faith in a trial. So as we go through this scripture here, we're going to break it down into a couple of areas, all right? We're going to look at the command that God gives us when it comes to living out the, uh, the, the faith in trial. We're going to look at the reason he tells us to do this thing. We're going to look at the requirements of us in order to live out that faith and the reward that we get when we do it. So basically what we're going to see is this. We're going to go through this scripture. What God's telling you to do when you're in a trial why he's telling you to do it, what you're going to need in order to obey him in what he's telling you to do, and what you can put your hope in that's going to happen as a result of it, right? What's he telling you to do? Why is he telling you to do it? What are you going to need in order to obey him? And then what's going to come as a reward and blessing on the back end as you do? All right, so that's the big idea. So let's jump in together. James chapter 1, verse 2 First with the command. What's the command that he gives us? The command is that you would meet your trials with joy. This is his command. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So let's just stop for a second. If you have a Bible in your lap as you're sitting on your couch with your coffee, great. Grab a pen. First word I want you to underline is when. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I want you to notice something that's obvious, but we can miss it. He did not say if, he said when. You're going to experience a trial. It is going to happen. You're going to have pressure and stress and strain and difficulty push in to your life. It's not an if, it is a win. If we're going to walk through trials the way that God calls us to walk through trials, step one is you have to be honest with yourself that the trial is going to happen. 
It's not probably going to happen. It's not maybe going to happen. It's going to happen. We're all going to walk through seasons of trial. One of the things that causes us to struggle so much is when we have foolishly bought into the idea that nothing like that could ever happen to us. And then we get blindsided. Some even try to couch it in spiritual terms, right? Well, if we have enough faith, then these bad things aren't going to happen. If I trust the Lord enough, then I'm going to be spared from these bad things, which is crazy on its face because in Christianity, we worship a homeless guy that got murdered, right? And his first apostles were all tortured to death. So the notion that that's the originator of our faith, those are the original followers of the faith, but somehow magically 2,000 years later, it's all flipped upside down and we now get promised no hardship and no difficulty is laughable and unbiblical. It's when. Now, I don't say that for us to become, you know, glass half empty, waiting for the other shoe to drop, waking up in the morning going, oh, I'm sure something bad's going to happen today. That's not the point. But the point is, let's just be honest about this. Trials are going to come. So what do we do? The fact that the trial is going to come is not up for debate. But when it comes, how are you going to handle it? Also, I want you to see, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That, that, that term there, trials of various kinds, is really interesting as well. It's kind of a complex word. Um, it can mean multiple things, right? These trials that he's talking about, these various trials, it can be an outside thing that pushes in on you that has nothing to do with you, not your fault, not your responsibility, but it's still nonetheless pushing in on you. Or it can also mean an inner temptation. Something comes welling up out of you. A desire for sin that comes welling up out of you. It can be an external pushing in, an internal pushing out. Various kinds. Various can also mean big and small, right? It could be massively huge things that could alter the rest of your life. Or it could be relatively small things that just mess up your lunch break, right? It could be big. It could be small. It could be external. It could be internal. It could be anything various. They say, well, struggling through my marriage, is, is, is that fitting into that category? That would be various. Struggling with my kids, various. Financial, health, relational, spiritual, internal temptations, struggles inside your church, whatever the case might be, that fits under the definition of various. And God does this on purpose. He intentionally keeps that definition broad. Because he wants, no matter what hits you, what the issue is, what the problem is, he wants you to understand, yes, I mean that one too, right? Yep, that one. That's the trial I'm talking about. Whatever it is, that's it. So what does he want us to do? Count all of these as joy. Count it all joy. That word count means to consider something to be a thing. So he doesn't mean that the trial you're going through is a good thing. He doesn't mean that the trial you're going through makes you happy. In fact, by definition, trials aren't pleasant, right? They're not fun. They're not enjoyable. They can actually be devastating and heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. He's not saying that the thing is to be considered joyful. But he says, I want you to understand that by my grace, there can be joy found in it. Consider that trial 
as a source of all joy, unmixed joy, pure joy found only in Christ. It is possible. So this is the command. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet these trials of various kinds. That's the command. And if we're honest, this goes totally contrary to everything that naturally wells up in us, right? It doesn't make sense. The pain relief industry is a multi-billion dollar business. We spend inordinate amounts of money every year trying to get out of pain. And I understand that. My medicine cabinet is full of things I take when I have a headache. I completely understand However, we can also turn that into our spiritual life. And when we experience pain, and we experience hardship, and we experience trial, we try our best to get out from underneath it as quick as humanly possible. We try our best to dull the pain and get out from under the pain and get out from under the trial as quick as we can. And what he's telling us here is don't do that. Stop. Rest. Be still. And see what you're walking through right now as an opportunity for joy. So, why? Why would he tell us that? It feels off. It feels strange. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds? Why would he tell us that? We get the reason in verses 3 and 4. The reason is trials are used by God for your spiritual growth. God is desiring to do something in you. And the only way he can effectively do that is through the trial. All right, so look at verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says, for you know. And that word know is really cool also. It, it, it means a, a continual knowing, right? I, it's a continual, constant, bedrock knowing, right? This might change, and that might change, and this might alter, and that might alter, and that might not be true anymore, and this might not be true anymore. But this, I know for a fact, will always be true, right? For you know absolutely, without question, this one truth. What do you know? What's that foundational fact? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness is going to have its full effect. You're going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We know for a fact. We know for a fact. The reason we can have joy in trials is because we know for a fact God is desiring to do something great in the midst of it. And that greatness is to grow you in your faith. Look at the way he kind of progresses and he talks about it in verse 3. For you know that the testing, right, the, the pushing, the prodding, the weight, the squeezing, the pressure, this idea of, of, of putting pressure and weight and heat onto a thing in order to, to prove its worth. This testing, 
of your faith. It does something. It produces a thing. It grows something. It grows what? Steadfastness. The word steadfastness means endurance, patience, the ability to stay up underneath a weight, right? Something is weighing down on you, and endurance is the ability to stay there underneath it. Not try to squirt out from underneath, not try to find an exit, but to stay under the weight of a thing. As we're tested in our faith, we grow in our ability to remain there and trust God. And as we grow in that, look at verse 4. And let steadfastness, that patience, that endurance, that ability to stay under the trial, let that have its full effect. It accomplishes something, right? What's it going to accomplish? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This idea of spiritual maturity, spiritual completeness, uh, this idea that, that all that is impure of you, impure of you is going to get burned away. These trials, these temptations, these struggles, these weights serve a good purpose. We can be full of joy when we experience a trial because we know something good's happening here. God is using this to increase my ability to stay and trust him. And the more I stay and trust him, the more he's purifying me in the faith. Right, the idea of how you would purify a metal, right? You'd put metal in this boiling hot liquid that it would melt and then all the impurities would rise to the top and you'd skim that off and what you have left is pure gold. In the same way for you, God is desiring to purify you and the way in which he does that is through a trial. It's through a trial. We, we know that God grows us in many ways. We, where we talk about God's word and the importance of being in God's word. We talk about prayer, the importance of growing in a prayer life. We talk about being a part of a biblical community, people who are going to love you and know you and hold you accountable. And these are tools used by God to grow us in the faith. And, and yes and amen, they are. But another key tool God uses to grow you in your faith is trial. It is A tool in the hand of the great gardener looking to weed out things in your life to cut away, as John 15 would say, so that you can bear more fruits. God is doing this and he desires to do it because he wants to see you grow pure in him. This is a tool used by God. In fact, I want want to read another scripture to you. Hebrews chapter 12, it's not going to be uh, on the slides, but if you, you have a Bible, you can turn there and read that or just jot it down and come back or hit pause and uh, look it up and come back. Hebrews chapter 12, listen to how the author of Hebrews talks about discipline, trial, weight, and what it does. Look, I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
I know when we see the word discipline, we can kind of recoil from that because we think punishment, you know, spanking, right? But that's not the way discipline is understood. And yes, there can be a consequence to a sin. It can be a part of that. But this idea really connects well in James chapter 1. He's talking about testing. The word discipline, uh, it, it means um, to, to train someone up well, right? Think about anything that you did, whether it's sports or military or whatever that you've, that you've done. They, they put you in a difficult situation so that you could grow and be stronger, right? You, you, you practice well so that you could play well. You train well so you could fight well. You were put in pressure situations so that, by God's grace, you'd be better. And that's the way Hebrews 12 is talking about this discipline. And it's interesting also, discipline here comes from the same root word where we get disciple. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to walk through times of trial so that God can use that to grow you. It's a good thing. Exactly what he says here. If you're a son, if you're a daughter, and you have a dad, a mom who loves you, they're going to discipline you. Right? We know a parent that refuses to discipline their child and just let them run wild, it's not because they love their child so much, it's because they hate their child and couldn't care less what their life ends up like. You discipline your child because you desire for them to have a certain life in the future. In order for them to have that life in the future, you know you have to put a little discipline on them today. And this is God's desire for you. As you walk through a trial, the reason that we consider it joyful is because God is using this in a powerful and great way. He's using this to accomplish a great, amazing, glorious, beautiful thing in you. There is another side of this. There is another end on the other side where you are growing more and more mature in the faith. There are things that God wants to do in you that can only be accomplished through a trial. There are things that God wants to do in you, and they can only be done through trial. It is his tool of growing you. And no, it's not fun. He mentions that in Hebrews 12, uh, there in verse 11. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. One of the great nah-duh verses of the Bible. No one ever experienced discipline and said, I love this so much. But on the back end, you experience the pleasure. No one ever woke up in the morning, went going to the gym and said, I'm so glad it's leg day. But as you discipline your body and you consistently go forward with that, and in the end you see the results, then there's pleasure. At the moment, it's not fun. But on the back end, there's joy. Why? Because through the pain, through the strife, through the difficulty, through the trial, something good was being birthed in you. Why should we consider trial as joy? Because it is a tool God uses to grow you in your faith. So, as we're growing in the faith, as God is using this tool right, to grow us in the faith, trial, as we go through trial, there are some requirements that we have 
in order for us to be able to do it, right? There are things you need if you're going to walk through a trial in a God-glorifying way that bears out spiritual fruit. Simply going through a trial does not guarantee that you're going to experience spiritual fruit. I know many people, I've experienced in my own life times of going through a trial, and I did not go through it in a way that glorified and honored God. I did not go through it in a way that, that, that worked for my good and for God's glory, and I didn't get any good on the back end. You've probably experienced that as well. You've gone through a trial, not in the way that God calls you to, and it was pointless. It didn't accomplish anything. And the truth is this. If you go through a trial in a way that does not glorify God, and you're not bearing out the fruit on the back end, you know what's going to happen? He's just going to make you repeat that grade. Think of school. Right? If you do not meet the grades and you cannot progress to the next level, what do they do? They hold you back. As we go through trials, we can either walk through it in a passing way, trusting God and receiving from Him what He desires to do in us through it. Or we can go through it selfishly, pridefully, um, uh, f- complaining and whatever. And we get nothing good on the back end. We just have to go through the whole thing all over again. He'll just re-engineer the circumstance so that we go through the same thing again. So, brothers and sisters, let's see what's required for us to walk through these trials in a God-glorifying way to get as much as way we can, to get as much juice out of that squeeze as possible, right? You're going to get squeezed. So, by golly, let's figure out how to get as much juice out of that squeeze as possible so that we don't have to get squeezed like that again. So, what do we need? Trials require wisdom, humility, and trust. So let's tackle wisdom first. If you're going to experience trials and go through it in a way that glorifies God, you need to walk through that with wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So first in verse 5. So it's interesting, in verse 4 he says, his desire is that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then he goes to verse 5 and says, but there's something that a lot of us are lacking quite often. And what's that thing? Wisdom. If you're going to walk through a trial well, if you're going to walk through a trial with faith, if you're going to walk through a trial in a way that results in your spiritual good and growth, you need wisdom to go through that, yes? And the great thing is this, God promises here that if you're walking through a trial and you feel as if you're lacking wisdom, just ask him and he'll give it to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. He gives generously, he gives graciously, and it says without reproach. In other words, God doesn't give it to you rolling his eyes, right? Oh, You need more wisdom? Yeah, I know, because you're foolish here. No, he he gives generously, he gives graciously, and he gives without rolling his eyes. He just loves giving you wisdom if you ask for it. You need wisdom in a trial, so seek the Lord for that. And then 6 and 7 explain how we get that wisdom. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So, so he gives this explanation. He says, look, if you're going to ask for faith, you need to ask. I mean, you can ask for wisdom, you need to ask for it with faith. With no doubting. 
The word doubting means to, to, to um, not fully give yourself to a thing. And it describes it as a ship being out on a stormy sea, being tossed back and forth, back and forth. And so the way it's describing is this. You know you're not asking for wisdom and faith if you're constantly jumping back and forth. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. Maybe it should look like this. Maybe it should look like this. I don't know if I should do this. Maybe I should do that. You're just constantly frantic like you're, a, like you're on the sea, being tossed back and forth, back and forth. Verse 7 says, For that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Look, when we don't ask in faith, let's don't pretend like we were actually going to get something. Because it says there in verse 8, that person is double-minded. Double-minded means to be going two different directions at the same time. To be sort of two-faced, if you will. Two-faced towards God. You go to God and say, I need you for wisdom, give me wisdom. But then you turn around and you try to depend on your own wisdom in ways. Right? You say, God, tell me what to do. Then you turn around and go do the opposite. Right? You're, you're double-minded. And it says you're unstable in all your ways. The word unstable literally just means drunk. You ever seen a drunk person try to walk a straight line? Right? They want to go forward. Their brain is trying to tell their feet to go forward, but they start to veer. That's how it's describing us. We don't ask in faith. We're, we say we want to go that direction, but the truth is we're, we're veering off. You need wisdom if you're going to walk through a trial in a way that bears out spiritual fruit in your life. So brothers and sisters, ask God. Ask him. And when you ask him, how do you ask by faith? What does that look like? Asking by faith, it looks sort of like you're asking him and then you're just quieting your heart and waiting on him to tell you. And when he tells you, you're not jumping back and forth and doubting him. right? So it's like uh, if I'm asking the Lord for faith, I'm just going to sit and say, okay, Lord. We're asking for wisdom. Okay, Lord, you're going to give me wisdom. I'm trusting you for wisdom. When the time is right, show me what I'm supposed to do. When the time is right, do this. When the time is right, tell me what to do. And then I just be still and wait. I'm not frantic. I'm not pro and conning the whole thing out. I'm just waiting on direction. And then when I sense that he gives me direction and I have peace about that direction, I don't try to jump around on it. I say, no, no, the Lord has given me direction. I'm supposed to go this way. I'm going to go. Right? You just wait for God to give you an answer. When he does, you just step out and go. Uh, for this weekend, so Saturday morning, I am sitting on my couch, and I'm getting blown up with text messages asking, so what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? And I didn't know what to do, right? I was trying to think through it, and I was asking people questions, and we were going through the whole process. And the truth is, I felt a test. I felt a weight. I felt a pushing in on me. I wanted to make the right decision. I didn't know what the right decision was, or even if we've made it today. I have no idea. To be quite honest, we'll just assume that we did. But I was like, okay, Lord, I need you to give me wisdom. I don't want to do this in my own ability. I don't want to just take a vote and, and uh, democracy wins. I want to know what your direction for us is here. I need you to give me wisdom. And as I'm praying that, literally, my phone rings. I look down, and it's a friend of mine who's another pastor here in our city. 
I answered the phone, and I said, so are you getting blown up as much as I am? He said, yeah, uh, I figured I need to call you, and we need to kind of chat through this together. And so we sat on the phone for about 20 minutes and just talked through it. And as that was happening, I felt a direction and a peace welling up in me that I did not have before that phone call. And as we just sat and talked, I felt the wisdom of God leading in a direction. And so we hung up. And and could I immediately just said, well, but maybe it's this also. And, well, and, and maybe we should do this as well. I could have, but that would have made me double-minded, unstable, and foolishly thinking that God's going to give me anything. I said, no. I genuinely believe this is the direction God has given me. I asked him for wisdom. I think he's given it, so I'm going to step out. And here we are. I'm standing here, and you're on your couch. But I felt a test. I felt a weight. I felt some pressure. I asked God to give me wisdom, and I just waited for him to do it. And when I felt that he did and felt that he gave me a piece for a direction, I said, yes and amen. I'll go that way, God. Wisdom. You need wisdom. If you're going to walk through a trial in a way that glorifies God and bears out spiritual fruit, you need wisdom. Uh, two other things you need. You need humility and trust. So pick that up in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So he gives, in the context of trial, he gives this illustration about um, a poor man and a rich man. So as we go through James, we're going to see this frequently, about the poor and about the rich and how they interact. We're going to see that a lot. And so he gives kind of an illustration here. He says in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So here's the idea. As we walk through a trial, it's significant for us to not focus on this earth and what reasons we think this earth can give us and how we walk through this trial. That makes sense. So for someone who's lowly, for someone who's maybe poor, for someone who doesn't have a lot of influence in this world, for someone who feels like they're being pushed down and marginalized, whenever they experience a trial, it's easy for them to think, I have no ability to fix this. I can't fix this. I can't stop this. I can't get out from underneath this. And they become depressed and anxious and worried and resigned to this issue. And they never push beyond that because they're looking from an earthly perspective and they can't imagine how they in themselves can fix it. So they just do nothing. Or the flip, the wealthy person. They're called to exalt in their humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he's going to pass away all of the stuff. The sun's going to rise, the scorching heat, and all the grass is going to wither and fall. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The idea is this. For the rich, for the wealthy, or not even just for that, but those who in their own strength feel like they can solve a problem. I can fix this. I can do this. I can handle this. I can get out from underneath this. I can take care of this problem. For them, their responsibility, their response is to humble themselves and trust God. So again, the, the big idea is to, if you're going to walk through a trial in a way that bears out spiritual growth in your life, stop looking at your circumstance from an earthly perspective. 
I'm low and I can't ever get out from underneath this and so I'm just resigning myself to this. Or I'm high in my own mind. I can handle this. I can do this. No problem. For both of those, he says, look, those who are low, exalt in the fact that God has lifted you high and trust him in this. For those who are thinking that they're high, humble yourself and realize you can't do this right and you need God to walk you through this trial if you're going to experience true spiritual growth. Stop looking at what the world says about your situation and look to Christ and what he says about your situation. Stop looking from a worldly perspective at your trial and testing and circumstance and look to Christ and see what he says about your trial, your testing, and your circumstance. If you're going to bear out spiritual fruit, spiritual growth in a trial, it is required of us that we do so with trust in God and not our own strength and humility. It's not us. So I don't look at my own strength and feel low because I can't. I don't look at my own strength and feel prideful because I think I can. I just look to him. That's what we have to do. There are requirements for us. We've got to walk in wisdom, so we've got to ask God about that. God, give me wisdom so I can walk through this. We have to walk through it trusting God, not feeling low and helpless and hopeless because we can't in our own strength, but we exalt ourselves in Christ and humbly. I'm not thinking that I can handle this, thinking I can do this, thinking I can control this, but I lay that down and I just trust Christ. And then we see what happens as a result of it. That's verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We are given the reward. The reward is that blessings come to those who are faithful. Blessings come to those who are faithful. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under the trial. You stay and you trust God. You stay and you say, God, you do whatever in me you want to do here. If you want me to stay under this weight, I will stay under this weight. Whatever it is you want to do, whatever it is you can accomplish in me, do it. I trust you. Yes and amen. This, permise, this person has said we'll receive a blessing from God. It says in verse 12 that this person is going to receive the crown of life. A reward given by God to his people who grow in their spiritual walk in this way. There is a special reward given to the followers of Christ who allow trials to be used by God to grow them spiritually. There's a special reward, a crown of life given to you. Why? Because you are victorious? No, because Jesus is victorious and you've trusted him enough to let his victory be counted as yours. You trust Jesus. So you walk through whatever trial that you have. And it says there also, I love how this verse ends. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's don't skip over the fact how important love is in walking through a trial. So many people struggle in trials because a trial in their life for them makes them start to question, does God really love me? 
1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. A crown of life is given to those who walk in love towards God. And the only way we're able to walk in love towards God is if we are convinced of his love towards us. Trials are not proof that God doesn't love you. That is a lie from Satan. You know how we know it's a lie? The very heart of Christianity hangs on Jesus Christ experiencing trial. You experience, you have, you live in, you have received the blessings of salvation because Jesus went through a trial. Trials bring blessing. Salvation is available for you because Jesus did not squirt out from underneath the trial of the cross. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays out, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He knew as much as it hurt, as much as the weight was there, as much as the trial and the pressure and the testing was going to be intense, he knew he had to taste the wrath of God so that you and I can receive the blessings of God. Blessing comes through the trial. If we're going to say that us experiencing a trial must mean that God doesn't love us, that would have to mean that Jesus experiencing his trial must have meant God the Father didn't love him. And that's insanity. Trials don't mean God doesn't love you. No. Trials are a gift from God used to grow you in faith so that you can experience from him something that you never could have otherwise. Here's the big idea I want you to see. God desires to use trials to strengthen you in him, not destroy you. You're going to have a trial. But I want you to see God's desire for that trial is to strengthen you in him, not to destroy you. In James And the whole point is practical faith, practical faith, practical faith. How do you live this out? How do you live this out? Here's how you live it out. You're going to experience trials. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. How you use that trial to let God grow you in your faith, that's practical. We can do this. We can see God build things up in us through trials that we never could have experienced otherwise. Um, September 2009 was, up to this point in my life, uh, the most difficult month I've ever experienced. So in September of 2009, uh, I was pastoring another church. And at the beginning of that month in September, it uh, it came to my attention that another pastor on staff with our church who was actually one of my best friends from childhood, uh, was engaging in ongoing immorality. Uh, I sat down with him. I approached him on this. And it became obvious to me very quickly that he was being unrepentant and dishonest about it. So I had to fire him. Having to dismiss one of my best friends, because there was 
obvious sin in his life that was going to train wreck everything. And I loved him and I wanted to protect him and protect his family and protect his walk with Christ. And it grieved my heart to see him not want the same thing at that time. And then having to make this public stance against him in this was devastating. It was even more devastating to find out that um, there were a lot of people in my church that at the time thought that wasn't a good idea. I mean, we like him a lot and people like him and he's, he's really funny. And so we should just let him stay. I mean, we all make mistakes, right? And so as a result of... Asking him to leave our church, we experienced a church split. And so I'm attempting to walk through the personal pain of experiencing what we had to experience. And I'm trying to navigate my church through all of this as well. And that's the first week of September. The second week of September, I contracted swine flu. I don't know if you remember swine flu. Um, so apparently we... I, I caught swine flu, and we've gotten COVID. So apparently, the Lynch family, we catch every pandemic that comes through. So whenever the zombie apocalypse comes, we're, we're, we're bound to get it. Uh, so I remember it was a Tuesday morning. I had a meeting at 9 o'clock. I walked in that meeting uh, at 9 o'clock, and I felt fine. Woke up, felt fine. Walked in the meeting, felt fine. Everything was great. 9 o'clock, awesome. By 9.15, I felt like I was going to die. Like, you've heard it described as sort of a hit-by-a-truck sort of thing. That's exactly what it felt like. From 9 to 9.15, I went from feeling fine to we got a real problem. Uh, I excused myself from the meeting. I literally stumbled to my car, drove straight to my doctor's office, walked in, and uh, just walk, didn't have an appointment or anything, just walked straight up to the counter. There was a sign on the, on the window that said, if you have these symptoms, please let us know immediately. I said, I think I have that. Uh, they sent me back into this back room and tested me and then came back and said, congratulations, you, you have swine flu. So sent me home and uh, I became violently ill for two weeks. I lost over 15 pounds. Uh, it was just agonizing, just agonizing. So about two weeks of that, after two weeks, I was no longer sick, but just physically depleted. I was just, could barely keep my head up. And then I got a phone call that a family member had committed suicide. And I was asked to travel down to South Carolina be with my family, minister to them, and preach the funeral. So I went down to South Carolina and spent an agonizing week with family, look, trying to minister to them, care for them, pray for them, go through the service. Uh, it, was, it was tough. We come home from that, and I remember just almost physically crawling into the house. It was just, I just went straight to the bed and just said, I want to sleep for about 48 hours straight. I just, I can't imagine anything else happening. And so I laid down and I was going to sleep and I was at that point, you know, where it's, um, you just slipped over into the uh, really good sleep. You know what I'm talking about? Like you just finally get there. And as I, I kind of rolled over and apparently a wasp was on my pillow and I rolled over and it stung me in the cheek in the middle of the night. So in a one-month period, 
I discovered one of my best friends was uh, walking in a sin that was going to destroy him. I had to make a move that caused a significant split in my church. I contracted swine flu and was violently ill for two weeks. I had a loved one kill themselves. And then, for just icing on the cake, a wasp stung me in the face. It was a bad month. I was physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually done. I, I couldn't think. Uh, I, I wasn't eating. I couldn't sleep. It was, it was painful. I remember talking to my wife and telling her, you know, if I could just kind of vanish and not have to deal with any of this, I, I would vote that. I just, I just want to get away from me. But I had responsibilities, right? I had a church to care for. I had a family to care for. I had things to do. So I just kept going, right? Just one foot in front of the other, right? I'm just, my mindset was just, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. Just one foot in front of the other. We'll do this. We'll do this. We'll do this. Everyone asked me, how you doing? I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. It's been a tough few weeks, but I'm good. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, just trusting the Lord, right? I'm good. I'm good. But the truth is, I wasn't. I was just trying to get through it in my own strength the best I could. And then I had a retired pastor come up to me once in the midst of all this. At the end of it all and at the end of that month, he came up to me. Uh, He actually attended our Sunday service that day and came up to me after the service and said, How you doing? I said, I'm good. I'm good. Again, you know, it's been a a tough few weeks, but, but I'm good. He said, Really? I said, Yeah, 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 I'm good. He said, Okay. He said, uh, can I give you a hug? <laughs> okay, sure, right, yeah. So he gave me a hug. Right? And I tried to do one of those man hugs, right, where like you, you, you do a handshake and, you, and then you kind of go around the corner and just kind of do a pop up, just a little pat, you know, and then back away. Like the, that was the man hug. But he was having none of that, right? I tried to do that and he just like wrapped around me and squeezed. Right? So then I tried, to, I tried to do the pull away thing and he squeezed even tighter. Like, all right, so, so the more I pulled back, the more he squeezed. And so, and as he's hugging me, he says, uh, you know, it, it really is all right for you to admit you're not all right right now. And I can't explain it. But at that moment, something in me just broke. And I just, <laughs> poor guy, I just wept on his, on, on his shoulder right there. Uh, he told me later that uh, I kind of collapsed into him and he thought I was going to crush him. Uh, but it just, it just hit. And what I realized was I was going through a trial, yes, a painful trial. It was hard. But I was not going through it in a way that was actually going to work out for my good. I was just gutting it out one foot in front of another, and it's going to be okay, but just put my head down. I'll get through the other side. We'll get done with this thing. But that's not the way God bears out spiritual fruit in trial. I wasn't really trusting him. I wasn't really leaning into him for his wisdom. I, I was like the rich man in James chapter 1, looking at my gifting and my ability and my strengths and my ideas, and we'll be able to get through this, and I can lead us out of it, and we'll be all right. And it took me 
to stop and realize I'm not doing this in a way that glorifies God. And yes, I might get through it on the other side. And yes, our church will be fine. And yes, I'll get physically healed up. And yes, my family is going to walk through the grieving process. And they're going to eventually um, grow in this as well. Like all, sure, sure, sure. All that can be true. But, but I wasn't going to experience the true spiritual fruit God wanted me to have. Because I wasn't going through it in a way that glorifies God. I wasn't going through it in a James 1 fashion. For you, as you walk through your trials, it's inevitable it's going to happen. Maybe it's a simple thing. Maybe it's a huge thing. Maybe it's multiple things just slamming on you at once like it did for me. No matter what that looks like. Maybe it's an external push in that has nothing to do with you. It's not your fault. You didn't do that. Someone else did that to you, but you're feeling it. Maybe it is an internal thing, a temptation that you're experiencing to give into. It's a trial that you're having to walk through. As you walk through these things, are you doing it in a way that practically allows God to use it to strengthen you? He wants to strengthen you in him through this, not destroy you. James is about practically living the faith. And the way that you practically live out this faith is that when you come to trials, come at them with joy because you know God's going to use this. I trust him. He's going to use this. He's going to use this to bear out spiritual fruit in me. And I'm asking him for wisdom. And I'm trusting him to exalt me. I'm trusting, I'm, I'm humbling myself and not depending on my own ability. I'm asking him to do this work in me and believing that I'm going to receive his blessing that comes as a result. This is available for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Trust Jesus for it. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you do this. I thank you that you, you're so glorious and amazing. You can take bad things, bad things, and still turn them to our good. You can take horrible, tough trials and allow joy to come from it because it's going to be used to build spiritual growth in us. Thank you, God. Only you can accomplish this. Only you could do something like that. It's a miracle. And I thank you, God, for that. I pray that you would empower us to trust you in our trials. Trust you that you are using it for our good and your glory. Trust that we can go to you for wisdom, that we can go to you to exalt us as we trust in you. Go to you in humility that we're depending on you and not our own strength, knowing that you are going to allow it to be a blessing and that we're going to get the crown of life as a result. We know, God, that this does not mean you don't love us. We know that you do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for first loving us. And as a result, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.